Welcome to Dear Live, a podcast that seeks to inspire global voices of change, teach you how to live with intention, and expand on the eight dimensions of wellness. I'm your host, Jeanette Schneider. Every week, I'm going to drive conversations from self-development to generational social change, even to financial wellness. I am here to share my stories and reflections alongside therapists, psychologists, coaches, and wellness experts to help you create a healthier you today so we build a healthier world tomorrow. Open up to possibility for yourself, society, and the world. And think of me as the best friend you didn't know you needed with the comfy couch and the brainy stats. Let's get started. Before I introduce our guest for today, I am so excited to offer our podcast listeners access to my free course, Money Metrics. You all know I am all about financial wellness, so I built this mini course all about debt, how to get out of it, use credit constructively, and grow your net worth. Not only do we talk about spending, saving, and everything in between, but I've also created the downloads you need in order to get your money right. Sign up through the link in the show notes, code LIVEPOD. It's my gift to you. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Kate Truitt, a neuroscientist and clinical psychologist with an MBA in healthcare administration. She's dedicated her life to advancing the treatment of trauma and stress-related disorders. Her treatment model consists of three core pillars, trauma-informed, neuroscience-based, and resiliency-focused care. This empowers her and her team to be proactive guides in her clients' transformational journeys as they seek and obtain their fulfilled life. I wanted to have Dr. Kate Truitt on the podcast to speak about her expertise in healing trauma and how she uses mind-body connection in her practice. Our minds, our brains are incredible things, and we are going to dig into different forms of trauma, EMDR therapy, what it is, and the power of the mind-body connection. Dr. Kate also talks about her own personal healing, the path, and how it doesn't always have to be decades of therapy. You can connect with Dr. Kate Truitt on Instagram at Truitt. Now, let's dive into the conversation. Hi, welcome to Dear Live. This is your host, Jeanette Schneider, and I'm here today with Dr. Kate Truitt. Thank you so much for joining me. Oh, it's a joy to be here. Thank you for having me. I have been um, splurging on your content, and you like your everything that you're talking about is so fascinating to me. And so I'm so thrilled that you could join us today um, because I understand that you... Um, work with your clinical psychologist and a neuroscientist. And I love, and as I told you before we got started, I love the idea that we can heal ourselves by using logical modalities and things that don't require us to spend years in, um, in identifying with our trauma. And I'm just like, I'm excited to talk to you. I'm like fangirling. So <laughs> I want to ask you first, how did you get started in this? And did it start with one modality? And then was it added onto? Like, how did the progression of your career, how did it start? Uh, well, I was originally fascinated in understanding stress and fear. And, and like all other humans walking on this planet, I have my own developmental trajectory. And I had very severe social anxiety. And I never could quite get a grasp on what was going on in my mind and my body, you know, why my palms would start sweating and I would just start shaking when I knew I had to talk to somebody or even pick up the phone and call somebody. And humans were quite scary. So the idea of being a psychologist was not even on my radar. There was no way I would ever imagine that I'd be sitting in a room with somebody on a journey. Uh, I worked in rat labs and um, it was one some of the most exciting times of my life. This is my early 20s. So it says a little bit about who I was as a early 20 year old in college. 
uh, and really got to see firsthand the opportunity of understanding the brain and emotional behavioral choices at a very fundamental level. And that was the inception point for me, looking at fear and stress and learning paradigms. And eventually uh, did my own EMDR, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing work and started healing through my social anxiety and realized, oh, there's a lot more that I am capable of doing now in bringing this forward. And so here we are 20, over 20 years later. <laughs> what I find fascinating is that so many times what we end up doing has to do with something that uh, is part of our lives. Like there's something, you were trying to kind of resolve something and wondering what it was about. Did you ever kind of like, okay, this is why I have the, this is why my palms sweat and what does that mean? And what's the next layer? Like what was the, the trajectory there? Yeah. Oh, well, absolutely. I mean, as you said at the beginning of this conversation, the logic of it. So I've always found a lot of safety in data and information. And so when I could start to piece apart and really get clear on what was the actual response that was causing my body to behave this way, what was going on internally in my mind that was having this downstream weird experience in my body, then I felt as though I was more in control of the emotional experience mm. than I was able to through working with some really amazing psychologists and psychotherapists down arrow into my own childhood experiences and go, oh yeah, those things weren't great. <laughs> that happened and start to really unpack. But I hadn't any awareness of that. And, I, and partially I grew up in the 80s and there wasn't conversations around mental health and mental wellness. Um, therapy wasn't a part of our world. I grew up in the Midwest in Kansas and it was very much kind of button up, toughen up, bootstraps. Yep. And so feelings just weren't there. And I think for me, when I could understand that feelings actually were a critical part of not just living, mm -hmm. but thriving it created a space for myself to give my give me the permission to have feelings. And there were a lot of pretty yucky ones at the beginning of it. So that was scary. But when I knew the yucky ones had a purpose, then I could put my toes in the water and go, oh, I got to feel this because it's important. I love this because I feel like, and I know exactly what you're talking about, because I was raised kind of in an environment, my mother had mental health issues, yeah. but there was, it was kind of taboo to ask for help. Like she asked for help, but it was almost like rather than saying, oh, this person might have depression, might have, whatever. it was more, um, we don't believe in that. She's crazy. She, you know, she just needs X, Y, Z, whatever. And there was kind of like pushing it aside. And now as a mother with a child with very big feelings, I have learned to say, let's talk about your feelings and what they mean from a perspective of like curiosity about ourselves, right? right? It doesn't mean that like something's bad and or wrong necessarily. It's, you know, it's information. And I think I love where we're going as a culture and as a society where people are a lot more willing to poke at their stories and poke at their feelings and understand that they don't necessarily need a response in that very in that very moment. And if you can add data to it and you can create for some a relationship to our 
brain and how to access this information um, and file it away correctly. <laughs> it's yeah, almost right. right. Like it's almost like um, people are like, oh, cool. I can do that. It's not as scary. That doesn't make me crazy. That's not a weird thing. Um, it's almost like a science project. Like we, we are our own science projects. Well, and I love that you're talking about getting curious and because that, that's the state of curiosity actually opens up a really critical brainwave experience in our brain. But as adults, we kind of had curiosity matured out of us. Mm. We stopped being curious as adults and yet our brain loves it. And so the more we can model that for younger generations and keep that alive for ourselves, actually the healthier our brain will be because our brain has a lot of negative emotions or difficult experience in it, we can actually build new brain pathways, new links to less attended to feeling states like compassion or kindness or courage or bravery by being curious about those emotional states. It's going, what if, what if I felt confident right now? Mm -hmm. Even asking that specific question changes our relationship with the possibility of a new emotional state. I think we've made things so hard. Like we've made things so like hard on ourselves. And I noticed that you have pillars within your practice. So you have trauma-informed, neuroscience-based, and resiliency-focused care. And that was really interesting to me because my big question that I've had, and I think I've had it since I wrote my book, like I believed that self-development and working on myself meant that it was this multi-decade long arduous process I had to pull things out and just because I forgave someone doesn't mean it was actually like happened and there's stuff in my body like there it's so complicated and confusing and I guess my big question is do we have to pull out every single childhood memory do we have to sit and journal every bad thing and go through a process of forgiveness and and whatever the next steps are can we make that process shorter? Do we have to remember everything? Well, and I mean, no, and some people don't and may, may never remember everything. Our, our brain is designed first and foremost to keep us safe. That's its priority is to make sure that we wake up to see another day. And, and because of that, it actually has mechanisms that tuck different memories and experiences away and say, you know what, you don't need to remember that. You don't need to think about those things. Mm -hmm. And so we can have those compartmentalized memories and those experiences and still live rich, thriving lives. And a lot of that goes back to what is our brain being taught to attend to? And if fear and survival are running the show, that is going to take priority processing no matter what. But our brain is smart, our body is smart, and it has mm -hmm. just like a broken bone will heal itself. Even if it's not set by a professional, it will heal. It will still hurt and ache for the rest of our lives, but it will heal. Our brain's doing the same thing mm -hmm. and has built-in mechanisms for self-healing. And when, one of the things we've been learning in the past decade is that we now have the ability to do that self-healing in our own hands. And that's a Love huge that. part of our my mission and vision and purpose and part of that is through my own story of, I, I was widowed at 29. I lived with PTSD and traumatic grief for five years. And knowing all the things I knew as an expert in this space, mm -hmm. my little survival brain still ran the show. Yeah. And so how is it that we can know all the things, our brain can still be in charge. And what's the, what's the missing piece there? How do we move into thrive and resilience? 
You mentioned something. So I did see a, a post that you made about your experience losing your, I believe it was your fiance right before your wedding, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. And you said something that kind of, I, I wanted to ask you about. You mentioned that you had done past work. And I, I don't know if I misunderstood it, but did that help or hurt mm. where yeah. you where you landed when you realized I, I'm going through a traumatic grieving experience and now have PTSD. It almost seems like were they, were they helpful? Were they congruous or did it? Yeah. Um, some of the past work was helpful mm -hmm. and some was not. And part of that was in the process of doing my healing journey from my childhood trauma, there were memories that my brain had locked away that I hadn't connected to or even remembered. I had a body anchor for them. I knew that they would come up periodically, but I didn't have the actual experiential of them. And in some of the EMDR work that I did, that opened up those memories. And now I have kind of these flashes of these really awful things. And I've been able to now clear through a lot of those through doing what's called the havening work, which grew out of EMDR and tapping. Uh, and which is much more focused work. Mm -hmm. I think the, the most important piece when we're doing, when we are unearthing traumatic experiences is really making sure we're working with a practitioner who understands and is trauma informed and knows how to set the experience up for success. And trauma informed is not a three hour CE course. Trauma informed is a full immersion into really understanding trauma and how to sit with a brain that is deeply wounded. Mm. Man, so, okay, so this brings up a question. So I do want you to explain EMDR a little bit and, and havening, um, but before that, say you have a wound or a traumatic experience that happened at a, like a foundational year, like a, a, a 10, 11, 12, it seems like that seems to be right? Yeah. Like the age where <laughs> everyone's like, when I was 10. Um, and you don't necessarily remember it or you have flashes of it, uh -huh. but you have that fear, fight, flight. Like you have something that comes up and you don't necessarily need to remember the entire thing. Is it through these modalities that you're able to rewire those experiences without having to recapture the whole memory? Yeah, exactly. Okay. We... Our hippocampus, which is the, you know, I, I like to think of it as the storyteller and the narrator of our brain. It, it's those really important memories that our brain can go back to and go, I remember this. This happened. This is what it looked like, felt like, all those things. Mm -hmm. That part of our memory system isn't necessarily always playing a role, especially in really, really early memories, you know, ages zero to three. That part of our memory system is not on board. And that part of our memory system may not always be available in really traumatic experiences. But our little friend, Amy, the amygdala, as I like to call her. I saw that. It's cute. Yeah. She speaks the language of the five senses. Mm -hmm. And so she's encoding what are the necessary components that our brain and our body need to remember after a traumatic experience so that she can help us take proactive steps next time. This is mm -hmm. technically what we call a trigger after a traumatic experience. We get triggered because our amygdala goes, oh, that is scary because I remember this other scary thing. 
but mm. those are sensorily based. And then we like to talk about it as there's a case for survival that our brain makes. So it's our cognitions, our autonomic system, somatosensory, as well as our emotions, which compose the case that Amy's really tying into kind of jumping into jumping onto um, protective vigilance when any of those elements are tapped or triggered mm -hmm. and what's amazing is when we remember and link back to the idea that our brain is always trying to keep us safe first of all we get curious i'm triggered why am i triggered mm -hmm. curiosity let's learn about this what's going on hey brain high five you're working to keep me safe and this feels awful okay we got it and then we can use tools to actually help heal the system. And that's where the self-haven and touch is critical because that creates a very specific brainwave change that calms the amygdala down. Tapping does something similar, or we can do the deeper clinical work where we're invited to actually go in and do exposure, which EMDR does a lot of, and then havening can do that as well as work with the sensory elements of the amygdala. So the past 20 years in psychotherapy have been huge. And I would say the past 10 years in the neuroscience of self-care and self-healing have been transformative. Yeah. It's, healing is in our hands. Well, it's been really interesting to me as I've interviewed across the board from spirituality to neuroscience, right? You have a yogi and a neuroscientist who both agree, like meditation works, self-care works, this works. And I'm like, I love that we've got, you know, these completely different kind of what you would see as being spiritual versus science, and they're like, this is a thing. Um, when I know with with EMDR, it's it's using the eye movement for desensitization. Uh, desens am I using? Yeah, desensitization. Yes. Desensitization. It was an extra syllable um, that I had thrown out. Um, and what I find really fascinating is it seems like a lot of these things are. Um, like you said, either sensory and or are there questions that we can ask ourselves that light up certain parts of our brain? Does that have anything to do with finding some of these? I know like if you're in a fight or flight state and you're kind of freaking out about something, it's that getting curious, right? Does that help calm those overworked neurotransmitter or calm Amy down and start moving you into different par uh, parts of the brain? Are there certain like is there a toolkit for someone who's having an experience where like, if you do this and this, it's going to move you into different parts of your brain and kind of bring it down a little bit? Yeah. So, so EMDR um, does use eye movements. It basically uses bilateral stimulation. So movement of the eyes from side to side and what we call butterfly tapping, which if you put your hands across your chest and rest your fingertips on your shoulders or just underneath your shoulders and tap. Mm -hmm. um, as well as different auditory bilateral stimulation to help the brain shift back and forth in the moment of a trigger. Uh, in the deeper clinical space, you're actually doing an exposure to the traumatic event and audience at home do not do this on your own by bringing up the remembered experience as well as the cognition. So part of that case for mm -hmm. trauma or survival we just talked about and healing through that. What is really, really cool is that that a butterfly tab, actually, if we turn that into what I call a havening hug, so same motion, arms across the chest and fingertips on your shoulders, but move your hands gently down your arms to your elbows. This is now a havening hug and it's using the havening touch, which engages and activates tiny, tiny, tiny little fibers in our skin that are everywhere there's hair, except for our palms have them too. Nobody knows why our bodies are weird. 
<laughs> the, those little fibers are called C-tactyl fibers go up to a critical part of our brain called the insula. And the insula, if you've heard the term interoception, this is my awareness of who I am in the world. It's our somatosensory experiences. It's our motoric movements, how we navigate the world all the way down to the physical experience of emotions. Mm. The insula is involved in all of that. And so you can bet the insula and the amygdala have a great relationship when it comes to how do I stay safe? Mm -hmm. And so applying that havening touch actually will wrap a warm, fuzzy blanket around the amygdala by down-regulating our brain. Mm. This is new data that has literally been coming out in the past 10 to 15 years. Mm -hmm. And West, the Eastern world's known this, to your point about yogis, meditation, mindfulness, acupuncture, acupressure, massage. There's a reason why those things work. Yeah. But Western medicine's been really focused on A to B. Mm -hmm. Here's a pill. Here's your cognition. Change your thought. But the thoughts come after our brain is keeping us safe. Mm. We have to work deeper. Tell me a little bit about, so you mentioned the havening hug. Is that part of a larger practice, a larger modality? Yeah, so the havening hug, um, there's also palm havening, which is palm against palm as though you're washing your hands under warm water or a gentle touch across the brow or under the cheeks. Those are the mechanisms of action for what's called the havening techniques. And those, the havening techniques have been evolving, expanding over the past 20 years as an opportunity, not just for trauma healing and recovery, but also resilience development and personal empowerment. And so it, it spans the spectrum of what our brain needs to live a really great life. Yeah. It's not just about healing the yuck back there. We have to build or sculpt the brain we want to live with. I, I love this because I feel, and when you mentioned like growing up in a specific time frame where we, this was not a conversation, you know, maybe in labs somewhere, but not yeah, right. <laughs> in the home um, or, you know, no one was talking about it. And then we get to a place where we are starting to realize how, how traumatized and how we carry not only our own trauma, generational trauma, right? And we're carrying this within us and we're starting to pull it out, but it seems like we've been messy, right? Like we've done it in, yeah. in somewhat of a messy way. And it's almost as science progresses and we understand ourselves better, we have better tools. And um, I, I would love to kind of like shift focus and talk about the person who, who hasn't yet realized that they have maybe trauma or triggers. They just know that they're having trouble sleeping. They know that they're really upset about this one situation. Yeah. Like when people come to you, do you, do they typically already know that there's something going on or are they dealing with stress, anxiety, and fear? Uh, both, both and. Um, usually the person who's picking up the phone and making a phone call to a psychologist or a psychotherapist has an awareness that something is awry. Got it. And they're in a state of motivated action. They're now taking steps. Mm -hmm. And I would say that most of us also know when something is off and we just may not have the words for it. And I can say that was me for the you know first couple decades of my life. Mm -hmm. Something's off, but I don't know what it is. 
And then if something's off and we don't know what it is, shame can set in. We can start doubting ourselves, feeling something I used to call myself on a regular basis. Like, I'm just crazy. There's, I'm just broken. There's something wrong with me. Right. Which then actually gets in the way of reaching out for help. Mm-hmm. And so for those individuals, that, I mean, that's exactly why I have the TikTok channel. That's exactly why we have the YouTube channel. I have a book coming out called Healing in Your Hands. Like all of the, the, these are the reasons why those materials are there because it's normalizing your brain's being a brain. You're feeling off. If you have insomnia, if you're binge watching Netflix for 12 hours, guilty, uh, whatever (laughs) it is that you're doing as a coping skill that isn't in service of you living the life you know in your heart you deserve, Mm -hmm. then let's explain and explore why. Mm-hmm. How is your brain doing these other things? Because it thinks that's what must happen for you to be okay. Yeah. I, I actually reached out to a, um, a therapist who I think you call it motivated action. Um, you know, and you're kind of like, okay, I've done all of this work and I, and I, you know, feel good about X, Y, Z. And then you're like, something's not, something's off. You know, I'm feeling... Um, for me, it's like, I always feel like I'm in trouble. I always feel like something bad is about to happen. And to me, I'm like, okay, that has to be something that has been wired within me. So let me help pull that out. And I understand there's lots of different ways to, to do that. Um, I'm curious from your perspective, like, how do you feel about meditation and hypnosis? Like, what are those as far as like, do you think that they're effective for these types of things? I know for me, I was like, I don't care what you have to do. I don't care if you have a magic wand. I don't care if I have to drink some weird tea, figure out what's going on. Cause I think that this is like, it's in my cells now. It's, it's, I can consciously yeah. recognize these things are no longer happening to me. Why do I feel like every situation or text or email is like something bad's about to happen? Yeah. Yeah, and it really is in our cells. And there's incredible data that highlights that the shifts from chronic stress or trauma, and again, intergenerational, we know that it's handed down across the course of time, literally changes our neurobiology. So it is in our cells. Mm -hmm. And that is where the opportunity for bringing in the understanding of the brain and the body is critical. Yeah. Because we can start to shift and change it. Do you like, um, so tapping, you mentioned tapping. Oh, I sorry, said, yeah, I was like hypnosis and meditation. Sorry, let me circle back. Tapping, that. So that was, <laughs> let me add. So tapping, yeah. hypnosis, meditation, you mentioned tapping and that surprised me. I didn't realize that that was going to be, like I've heard like Gabby Bernstein talk about tapping and I've seen it and she refers to herself as a spiritual teacher. And sometimes I think that things that are really helpful for individuals from a clinical perspective maybe are kind of pushed aside because they're talked about in the spiritual community. Yeah. And, and and so that's one of the things where I'm like, that's fascinating because she's talking about kind of spirituality and working with your spirit team and tapping. And you're a neuroscientist talking about tapping. So I'm curious about those like three, the tapping, the meditation and hypnosis, like what you think about them. Yeah. Uh, phenomenal. I mean, at the end of the day, our, our goal is to help our brain heal and recover through whatever injuries it has sustained or whatever changes it's made in order to help us stay alive. Meditation is a really powerful opportunity for connecting inward, developing that interoception we were just talking about, self-awareness in the world, mm-hmm. noticing the micro data points that we might never have learned to pay attention to, but are critical for our mind and our body to be successful in the world around us. 
hypnosis can do the same thing. It's using different patterns to help the brain link and go in the direction it wants to go. Tapping settles the system. It can help the brain and the body process rapidly through specific things or just calm down very, very quickly. And to your point about the energetic community, the neuroscience community, I mean, at the, at the end of the day, our, our mind and our body is a closed system. What happens in our brain impacts what happens in our body. What happens in our body impacts what happens in our brain. And there's so much that we don't know, but when we close the door on experiences that we know are helpful, are we just creating bigger roadblocks for people to heal? Mm-hmm. Because I think we are. Absolutely. What do you, um, how do you feel about journaling? Uh, well, journaling is so scientifically proven to be amazing. <laughs> Good. So, You're like, that's a done. That's a done. That's a done. J journaling's amazing. And uh, the one thing that I really recommend, so there's journaling, um, the the artist way journaling, the Myrna. Oh my God. Yeah. I love her, Julia Cameron. Yeah. I would love to like get into her brain one day. Oh, I know. Absolutely amazing. So there, there's journaling that is just stream of consciousness, which to me is you're building an inner awareness with who we are in the world. Uh, there's journaling that's more guided and directive. So um, Dr. Krista Neff is the world's foremost expert in self-compassion. If you go on her website, she has tons of journaling prompts to help you build self-compassion internally, which is a skill and not a skill many of us are taught, myself included. Um, mm -hmm. Looking at uh, Rick Hansen and resilience journal. So you can actually choose your journaling prompts to build the neural pathways that you want more of. And, and here's what's cool about our brain if we think about our brain as being a map of cities and villages we have many cities that are visited on a regular basis in terms of our emotional capacity and experience and if we live in chronic stress emotional avoidance if we live in a state of trauma our cities are kind of like new york city there's three not only are there a thousand freeways to get there there's three airports you can fly into the city of rage or the city <laughs> right but our village of courage is there. It just doesn't get visited. It's like, yeah. oh, I go every 15 years to the village of courage. But through using these tools, we can say, hey, city, I'm gonna visit you less because I'm building links to these villages. And then when we integrate tapping, mindful meditation, Biofeedback, heart math, another wonderful tool. Breath work is huge. I love breath work. Uh, the havening, the self-havening work. Mm -hmm. We're down-regulating our system and then helping it go in the direction we want through curiosity and intentional attention. Our brain wants to change. It, it just cares about keeping us alive. Right. I, I like you. Kind of blew my mind when you talked about like how you can use these journaling prompts to visit the cities basically create neuro, new neural pathways or strengthen them, right? Make them more active. And I absolutely love that because I, I was gifted Julia Cameron's The Artist's Way when I was like 20 something. A guy I dated gave it to me as a gift and it's like the only and best thing that came out of our relationship. <laughs> and I love it um, because I feel like it helps me become known to myself. Like I feel like there's a lot of subconscious things that were coming out and I'm like, oh, going back, I see patterns 
I see the way I, I view myself. I see the way I look at the world. And you've mentioned several times in this conversation, helps us figure out where we are in the world. And I think that's really fascinating because I had another conversation with someone who went on like a kind of a soul searching discovery journey. And he was kind of like, it helped me figure out who I was in the world. And I feel like there's almost like this, um, you mentioned like the, the cities and the villages. It's almost like we're a, a universe unto ourselves, right? And so oh, we're yeah. tr trying to figure out where we orbit around others and what our place is. And we have so much capacity for change um, when we are intentional about it. And like you tell someone a couple of years ago to journal and they're like, oh, journal my feelings. Well, if you do it with intentionality, like you said, I love the idea that you can strengthen your compassion or your confidence or your... Um, your thoughtfulness or whatever the things are that you want to bring to light, to illuminate, um, by being intentional even in the words that you're using and, and the way your hand's moving across paper and the, the re-uptake, re like you're uptaking the information all over again. And there's a science behind that too, correct? Like There is, yeah, and the dual processing and, and even it being your own handwriting and the words that you're writing reflecting back to you. One, one of our favorite exercises is an adaptation from uh, Kristen Neff's self-compassion letter, which is you write a letter to yourself from the point of view of somebody who knows you as deeply as you're possibly capable of being known. And that means they know all the good, bad, and the very ugly. Mm -hmm. And they're writing a loving letter to you. And then putting, taping that letter to the mirror and reading it back to yourself while applying that havening hug or this, the havening touch so that the system is down-regulating and in a state of receptivity to receive the words that you're reading back to yourself that are from your own handwriting. Oh, I love it. Now, it's reparenting ourselves mm -hmm. and our brains are capable of that. And I, I like to think of our amygdala and that's one of my areas of specialization as a neuroscientist as having three core values. And the first one is, of course, am I safe? Mm -hmm. And how are we safe? Well, we have to be lovable to the people in our world and we have to be able to create change, which is success. So it's safety, lovability, and success. I'm writing this down. <laughs> and, and success isn't money in the bank. Success is Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Is mm. there a roof? Do I have food and water? Mm. And as children, we're exploring those three core values. How do I get these values met? Who am I in the world and who is the world to me to ensure I survive? Mm -hmm. As adolescents, we're learning and linking into, and then by the time we're adults, those core links are developed. This is how who I am in the world to stay alive. This is how I get those values met. Sometimes it works out well. Sometimes the results can be somewhat catastrophic. Mm. I stay, I, I'm lovable if I stay small and people please and fawn and put my needs on the shelf behind me because my needs don't matter. That's how I'm lovable. Right. Oof. You got to unwind that one. Yeah. How do you, out of pure curiosity, raising a human um, with lots of thoughts and emotions, um, how do you almost kind of teach this in a way that's, um, is there a way to talk to kids about their own brains and, and how to kind of make this their lifestyle as opposed to having to learn it through therapy later on. <laughs> yeah, right. 
well, I think the social emotional learning programs are amazing. Uh, are you familiar with Dr. Tina Bryson? Mm-mm. I will look her up. Yes. So she is partnered with Dr. Dan Siegel, um, interpersonal neurobiology, and she has incredible programs for parents and children and a whole bunch of New York Times bestselling books on exactly this. Mm-hmm. And she's also just an incredible human being. She's absolutely delightful. Um, so it, it's using specific types of language and tools to teach kids that, yes, your feelings are great. And hey, by the way, agency you're having big feelings and what's a tool you can use right now for yourself to feel better, to calm down. You know, the five finger breath is a classic tracing, you know, breathe in your audience can't see me. <laughs> so tracing each finger. And as you move up the finger, you breathe in, as you move down the finger, you breathe out. That That's such a classic breathing exercise that when a child starts to feel out of control in their body with big feelings and hormones do that, it doesn't even mm. have to be something in the environment. It could just be the hormones of development. They know, Hey, I have a tool. Mm-hmm. I do a lot with Havening on the YouTube channel. There's an entire playlist for all ages of children, adolescents and teens of how to speak to this as an opportunity, how to learn how to use it. And then also exercises. I love it. When we empower children to know feelings are good and you have tools to feel safe within the feelings, yeah, those are healthy brains. I love that. I think, so from the time my daughter was very young, we got her this doll that had feelings um, on one side, the name of the feeling on one side and the emotion, like the face on the other. And because she couldn't use the words yet, we started talking about like, this is what you're feeling and this is what's happening. And so she pull it out it had like a little like a pouch on its behind and she'd pull it out of its little butt and she'd hand us the the feeling that she was feeling the day and it would go on its stomach and you know it'd be happy sad whatever and over time you know she got to be very good at saying today I feel stressed today I feel frustrated today I feel angry no I'm not that I'm this and I didn't realize how special that was until I was around kids that did not have words for their feelings and it's just rage and I don't know and you're like well I don't know how to help you if and here she's able, and then one day she came to me and she's like, mom, I feel two feelings at the same time and I don't know what to do about it. Like, I'm like happy, but I'm a little bit, like I'm happy and I'm this and I'm sad. And like, do we call this one thing? And I was like, welcome to, you know, the complicated life that we lead where we are complex creatures. But how cool to be able to say, okay, let's observe those. And then let's find ways to regulate them, right? And I mean, taking it basically to the next step um, to where they have the tools and practice. I have noticed that just talking about these things with her, it's even changed her interactions with her friends. She actually gives them a lot of credit when they're acting any type of way. And she's like, she doesn't understand. Yeah. She's like, she doesn't know how to talk about her feelings yet. I get it. But this is what I see. And I'm like, I love it. It's awesome. It's been, I just hope these conversations become commonplace, right? To where when someone's having an emotion or, you know, and it just becomes the new generational gifting, right? Exactly. We learn how to self-regulate. Yeah. Well, and the power of that is if somebody says I'm depressed, that's such a big meta emotion. Mm -hmm. It's hard to take action. I mean, just even as I say that, you know, just feel in your body how that feels. I'm depressed. Right. It's like, oh, stuck, paralyzed, heavy. Yeah. Oh, wait a minute. Those Now we're getting into feeling words. What does depression feel like? Well, I know for me, it feels like fatigue. It feels like um, 
disinterested, apathetic, shameful, guilt, usually a little bit of lonely. Uh, I mean, we can throw in so many feelings for depressed, but once we start breaking depressed down into, oh, oh, I am a little lonely. I can do something. Mm-hmm. Oh, I am exhausted. Maybe I need to rest. Maybe I'm burning out. Oh, I'm whatever the next micro feeling is underneath that meta header. We can usually take an action on and one action will change the entire feeling state. Mm-hmm. And so giving your daughter the gradients of her emotional vocabulary like that, she is empowered to know I have this feeling or I have these feelings mm-hmm. and, and I can do something about one of them. Yeah. I can make it better or brighter because I want more play or I can you know, reach out or express that I'm angry and frustrated. Yeah. When I, I was just thinking as you were talking of, of you know, the like the halt technique and uh-huh. exactly. Yeah. Okay. Angry, angry, lonely, tired, halt. I had one of those yesterday's yesterday. I was I hadn't eaten and I was really frustrated um, with my partner. And I before I reached back out to him, I'm like, I'm going to go eat <laughs> something and then I will have. a. And I was fine. It was I was overreacting to something because of, you know, the fact that I was hungry. And but it took that awareness Mm-hmm. to say, okay, like I could really be irritable about this situation. It's not actually that bad. It's, yeah. it's, it's hunger. But I also think like we have a tendency to want to cope with our emotions and these big feelings and by binging, by sex, by yeah. And so I'm curious from your perspective, like when is it okay? Like there are days where I'm like, I've eaten so healthy all week and today I'm having a rough day and I'm going to go eat a candy bar and follow it with, you know, a bag of Doritos. Like when is it okay to have those coping mechanisms and when should you kind of like the light go off? Like, Hey, I need to actually start asking myself some questions. Yeah. I think rather than looking at it, when is it okay versus not okay? it's reframing it into what's my understanding of why I'm doing this and creating to your point now permission Mm -hmm. and then exploring, is this the coping skill that I want to be using right now? Or is there another coping skill? Because here's one of the things that's really fascinating about the amygdala is a, the amygdala gets a bad rep for being all about fear, fight, fight, freeze, trauma, all that stuff. The amygdala is actually highly involved in our ability to thrive it plays a critical role in social connectedness, social safety, healthy relationships. And our brain can get a little confused when it says, wait, when I binge eat, I feel better. So the amygdala starts to build a city around the way to feel better is binge eating. Mm, Fascinating. Yeah, so now we've got LaGuardia, we've got JFK Airport all flying into binge eating when I'm feeling stressed, as opposed to the other options of, I could also take a walk. I could also play with my dog or sure I can go visit the city. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with going to the city. Right. But we want to make sure we understand the choices or that our brain's just not autopiloting to the, to the less preferable choice. Oh man. I mean that like, it's so interesting. Like when you put it in that kind of framework, because like for me, I am an emotional eater. And so whenever anything is bad, but then over COVID, <laughs> I built not only an international airport, but there were like tram systems and we had like, yeah, we had like lounges. Um, yeah, it was, it was pretty bad. And 
And I, I appreciate that so much because it is that rewiring and getting back into healthy habits and kind of um, closing down all of the entry points, right? And saying, okay, that was not a healthy way to manage stress during that period of time. And also recognizing that there are times when that's the thing we're going to do. And there's a time where the easy button is the way. Mm -hmm. And then in those moments, the most important part is to not shame ourselves on the back end. Mm -hmm. To turn around and go, okay, I did the thing. And you know, my I, I will disappear into Hulu or whatever it is for hours on end, knowing that I've got 10 million other things that I ought to be doing. Right. Or taking a walk would probably feel way better. And it's on the back end going, you know what? Maybe my brain just needed a zone. Yeah. Maybe I just needed to give myself permission to be whatever it is in this moment. Yeah. And high five brain for again keeping me safe. Yeah. Cool. As long as we stop the shame spiral. Yeah. We're making powerful change. No, I love that. We, I, I grew up in corporate America and I have this like overproductivity kind of expectation of self, like so many hours, what have you. And I've gotten to the point now where I've realized I make much better decisions when sometimes I'm just like, I shut everything off and I'm like, I'm going to go take myself out to lunch and go shopping because I just need to take myself out of that framework for a moment. And it's when I'm walking around by myself that the best ideas come. And so it's like giving yourself that permission and not being like, oh, I didn't work a full X number of hours today and being like, no, but I'm going to be amazing tomorrow. <laughs> like I'm going to be on it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, and constantly remembering. So I, I grew up as an emotional eater and I mean, Otis Spunkmeyer, those chocolate chip muffins. Yep. Holy bejesus. <laughs> um, and you know, it, it took me a really long time to rearrange my relationship with food into, wait a minute, food is in energy and nurturing, but food is not emotional numbing. Mm -hmm. and, and that separation, it was kind of like a separation of church and state for me. Yeah. So if I'm going food, emotional numbing, okay, I may choose to do that now, but notice the word choice. Yeah. It's not an automatic grab not an automatic yeah. thing it's like I'm gonna do this right now and I'm making the choice mm -hmm. and and making that decision right yeah rather than it being automatic it's automatic that's our little amygdala going what is going on right now so back to your question about people who know something's off but they don't know why then when we're living in those automatic behaviors it's pulling back even just the tiniest bit and going what's happening right before I reached for the thing Mm -hmm. what is the feeling that starts to percolate and and it could be a physical sensation I know I get like a, a burning in my chest it's not heartburn it's like a, a tensing and it feels red and hot and I know mm -hmm. when that energy starts to show up I'm pretty much down starting down the road of an automatic behavior to cope wow I can catch that and it's taken a long time but if I can catch that then I can say I'm doing something different mm-hmm that's really, that's a lot of self-awareness. And I, I've gotten to the point where like I can, I can experience a thought or feeling and be like, wait a minute, that's not, that's not my, that's not stasis for me, right? Yeah. What's going on? But I don't know that I've been able to sense, I mean, I do like I'll have like nervousness or fear and then that's kind of when I'm like, what's about to happen? But again, I am working on that. <laughs> I'm like, this is going to be pulled out in no time. I um, I have a, a flow chart of, of how we're getting rid of my neurobiological fear. <laughs> um, 
but I just, I, this has been so enlightening for me and so incredibly helpful. And I, I love it because it's providing people the ability to take control of their lives yeah. in a way that is easy. I mean, it's, it's, it's not hard if you have the awareness yeah. and you have the tools. And I think that's what, like, I think we want to make things so hard and so complicated and require a lot of, you know, pain. But if we get to the point where we're like, okay, I'm going to regulate myself. I'm going to make some decisions. And if I want to pull up some of these memories, I know that I can do it through these modalities. Um, yeah. And, and what I'm dealing with then. Um, I'm just, I'm really thankful. Is there anything else that I have missed that you think would be helpful to our listeners when it comes to this conversation? Any advice? Yeah, I, I, mean, I think the, the, the one thing I always want to circle back to is that when we have a lot of complex childhood experiences, it does play a really important role in shaping the way our brain shows up in the world around us, no matter how old we are. And when our amygdala is running the show, we do feel or can feel out of control, whether it be in our relationships and our emotional regulation and our relationship with our mind and our body or our coping skills. And finding, if we choose to work with a practitioner, finding a practitioner who really understands trauma is critical. Mm-hmm. And then the second piece is that, that any you feel safe with. If you don't feel safe with your person that you're doing this work with, the brain's not going to let you do the work. It's going to create additional barriers. Mm. And so take the time to interview and to explore and make sure that the clinician that you choose is the best fit for you. The second piece is just because you have childhood trauma doesn't mean you're a traumatized being. There's actually a lot of very significant research out there that highlights that highly successful people tend to actually have adverse experiences in their childhood. And it's when one or two of those starts breaking through that it's time to say, okay, I need to get serious about my Mm self-care. I need to get serious about building my resilience. I need to get serious about my healing program. It doesn't necessarily mean go to to therapy and open up Pandora's box of trauma because doing that can actually make things worse. Mm It's instead saying, wow, I'm starting to vibrate at a different frequency. I'm having behavioral pattern breakthrough that I don't like. That's not in service of me. Let's address those. And a lot of times you can address those in micro ways that are even more powerful than going in and opening up the trauma box of doom and then spending five years healing through all of it. Yeah. No, I love it. I love it. This has been amazing. And, um, I know people are going to want to check out your YouTube channel and your TikToks and all of that stuff. So where can they find you? Yeah, so YouTube, uh, just Dr. Kate Truitt is the, the YouTube channel, which is also my name. Um, <laughs> and then on TikTok, same thing. It's, I think it's dr.katetruitt is the TikTok channel. Um, the YouTube channel is designed to do one psychoeducational and then one guided therapeutic practice every single week. And then we have a bunch of shorts that we put out periodically throughout the week. And then on the TikTok channel, where we what we do there, which is really fun, is people are invited to post their questions in the comments to different videos. And so if you go on one of the playlists on TikTok and say you're interested in learning about trauma in the body and you find a video on chronic pain and trauma, which is one of my areas of expertise, and you go, well, why is this happening? You can actually post that comment. And then I have a questions queue and each week or each day I respond to a different question in the the questions queue. So the idea is it's a psychologist and a neuroscientist in your pocket. I love it. How do we disseminate this data 
So we all know that our brains are being brains. We're not, we're not, again, using that word I used to give myself all the time. We're not crazy. Our yeah. brain's just doing what it does to help us stay alive. And here's some things you can do to help it stay alive in a better way. I love the work you're doing and I think it's so incredibly valuable and important. And I'm thrilled that you have reached the, the social media in a way that's effective for people to learn. So like, that's fantastic. And I'm just thrilled that you came and shared your, your, your knowledge with us. And for all those listening, go follow, go watch, and don't forget to follow us on Instagram at dearlive.app and download the app on the Apple app store. Thank you for all that you're doing for humanity as well. It's been a joy spending this time with you. Thank you so much.